Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. Today's episode marks a special three-part series of our podcast. To commemorate Black History Month and this year's theme of celebrating our sisters, saluting our sisters and honouring matriarchs of movements, we're once again partnering up with Samuel Tolley, founder of Hidden Pages. If you're a loyal 40 Minute Mentor listener, you will have come across Samuel already. He is a teacher, and if that wasn't keeping him busy enough, he's also the founder of Hidden Pages, a zine discovering hidden melanated history and lists of sources exploring the black experience. Samuel is coming back on our podcast for a month-long partnership where we have passed on our platform to him to share the podcast mic with some brilliant female entrepreneurs. But before we dive into his episodes next week, we thought we'd kick off this series with one of the most inspiring episodes that we've ever recorded on the podcast. Baroness Una King became the second black woman elected into British Parliament, and she is currently the VP of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Snap Inc. When Una joined us on the podcast originally, she candidly shared some of the challenges that she's had to overcome when she was in politics, and also some of the most important lessons she learned from the tragic murder of George Floyd. Following on from a few excerpts from her episode, we'll hear a collection of clips from people sharing what Black History Month means to them. So a huge thank you to Samuel for facilitating these conversations and also to Karen, Michael, Gaffer and Matthew for taking part. That's enough for me for now. Please sit back, relax and enjoy this very special bite-sized episode. I to set my heart on becoming a member of parliament like literally around about the age of five but when I became an MP at 29 I was like oh that took a quarter of a century that was a long time <laughs> and everyone else was like you got there so young I went in very much feeling uh don't put me in a box don't label me you know okay yeah I am the second black woman but I'm not coming in to do women's issues and I'm not coming in to be labeled a black person I'm coming in to be labeled a politician who wants to work on social justice issues and then I remember I got I got just this like unprecedented well sorry I don't know if it's unprecedented but the 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 post people actually in the house of commons told me it was certainly a bit unprecedented for a new mp but there's just huge volume of mail from these different constituencies like basically a ton of young people all around the country wrote to me a ton of women all around the country wrote to me and a ton of black women all around the country and then also my my mother is jewish so i got a lot of jewish groups writing to me and uh anyway and the Basically, the women were writing to me saying, you know, we need you to take up black women's issues. These are the issues facing black women. And I was like, man, I want to talk about like foreign affairs. And, you know, like I'm here. I, I want to talk about international development. But, you know, why do I have to talk about what's happening to women in Brixton? That's not even my constituency. The white men yeah. aren't being asked to think about what's happening to white men in Devon, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I managed to hold on to this kind of rather blinkered and, and non-empathetic viewpoint for about six months. And then it literally just dawned on me. It's a matter of representation. I mean, mm. you know, if there are only out of 650 members of parliament, if you if you are only the second 
black women and also women of color. I mean, I was representing a majority Muslim constituency. There had never been a Muslim woman elected to mm. parliament. And if you are going to say to them, oh, sorry, I'm interested in other areas, actually. Yeah. Yeah, so I was always really conflicted of, yeah, here's my identity, but I don't want my identity to define who I am or what I do in politics. But anyway, clearly that was another fail because, hey, look, my job now, and my job then to an extent, in the end, I was just like, you know what? I am going to have to do that. And I did after a point. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really call it embracing it because I still was always, hey, the white men don't have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was surrounded by white men. You know, it yeah. was a place of white men. I mean, when I, the, the day before I became a member of parliament, 90% of MPs were men. I'm about to say white men. I mean, maybe three of them were not white. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, then the day, the day after, because we had all women's shortlists at the time, you know, a mechanism to increase representation, I actually benefited from not being on an all women's shortlist because the amount of flack that the women mm. on these all women shortlists got was unbelievable. And, you know, it really it, it used to leave me aghast because you'd have all these men, especially white men on conservative benches, you know, would essentially get up. They thought it was disgraceful. How can you have this mechanism to have all women shortlists? You know, you're discriminating against men. And you hear this this rhetoric all the time now in the Internet. You know, whenever you do something for mm. them, you're discriminating against men. And it's like, yeah, but wait a minute. It's been actually an all-male shortlist everywhere for the last 500 years. Like, do you want to change the status quo or not? And at a certain point in anything, and I carry this lesson through to this day, now when I work in the tech industry, it's like, okay, but do you actually want to change the status quo? Is representation important to you? And when you're asking that question in like the heart of Mm. democracy, actually the answer is really important because if the answer is no, it's okay for us to go for, you know, we're meant to represent the country. Oh, we exclude 50% of the population. Never mind, our bad. Mm. You know, at a certain point you have no legitimacy if you're not willing to actually take some action to change that status quo. So that was the environment in which I came into it. I should say, though, I did have a really good time at the beginning. It got very, very hard within about two to three years. But at the beginning, especially all of these white men and in particular conservative white men, they it was this kind of exoticism thing, which is like vaguely racist. But, you know, I'll take it. They would come up to me and they were just like literally aghast that I could walk and talk at the same time. (laughs) Oh, my God, it's just incredible. And I was like, okay, and so what? are you going to do to support my bill on this, that, or the other? Do you know what I mean? I would kind of co-opt them in and uh, um, have relationships with them. Basically, and a lot of those relationships came on, it's from the basis that they were like, oh my God, this black woman is literate, you know, which is wow. a racist premise, but I'm, I am always a pragmatist. And I'm like, okay, look, they haven't spoken to black women before. They don't know. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. So I'll, I'll take it and I'll work with it. And that's what I did. Wow. I mean, it's crazy to think that that was what you went through. And you clearly, there was lots of discrimination along the way. But you've also been described as the MP most likely to change society. So, uh, you know, amidst some of the failures, there was lots of uh, amazing work and success. You talked about losing your your seat in 2005, which which must have been really, really tough uh, in front of, as you said, millions of people. 
And for anyone listening that might be going through, might be a high profile role or they've had something go wrong, a big failure, let's say. How did you handle that stressful time and what helped you get through the disappointment of losing your seat, kind of move on to what's next? Yeah, I think it's so important in life to to not have your entire identity bound up with your job. Like if you literally have nothing outside your job, if your world doesn't exist, if you don't have a label, whatever that label might be, my label at that time was member of parliament, then I think you're really setting yourself up for dangerous <laughs> times. I mean, look, it was it was really hard. The, the, the biggest difficulty for me was just how disappointed I left so many people. I mean, people came for, you know, it was a very bitter, bitter, bitter battle. People came from around the country to support me. And my, my great, you know, I, I lost by 800 votes, which in the scheme of things is, you know, anything under a thousand, you automatically have a recount because it's very, very close. So it was very close. And I always personally just felt, oh my God, 800 votes. I just needed to have knocked on 800 more doors, you know, like I should have worked longer. I should have worked harder. Having said that, there weren't any more hours in the day, but that disappointment was devastating because I cannot really overstate how much respect I have for people that stay in politics. Like you Mm. are often get you, you just, you are, it's the definition of a no win scenario basically most of the Mm. time. Um, you know everybody loves to hate you then the people that love you and there are some but often they just love you because you are their tribe what you know it's not that they love you necessarily the people that hate you they hate you whatever you're gonna do and then you know for me I mean I was getting death threats like just the same way I used to get thank you notes you know it was Scotland Yard, uh, you know, gave me a a poll with a mirror at the end of it to check for car bombs every morning. And when I would check to see, oh, am I going to get blown up today? I would think, oh, there must be easier ways to try and change the world. (laughs) You know, it was really, really brutal. I mean, mine was particularly brutal. You know, I remember having conversations with a a friend of mine at the time, Joe Cox, who was running, who wanted to become an MP. Mm. And um, she said, you know, I read your book. It nearly put me off becoming an MP because, you know, your situation is so brutal. And I was like, Joe, no, 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 no. We need women in public life. No, I just, you know, I did give a kind of like warts and all account of what it was, but we, we need people in public life. For her then to be murdered by yeah. a constituent was just the most devastating thing. What was so strange for me is like, I honestly always thought I was the one that was going to be murdered. <laughs> yeah. And I remember saying to her, like, Joe, you don't, you don't have a constituency with the amount of kind of hatred, poverty, extremism, insanity. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so that that is just uh, completely devastating to me um, and always will be. But my point is I kind of felt when I lost my seat, devastating as it was, I genuinely felt, oh, my God, I got out with my life. I, wow. I have to be grateful for that. I yeah. mean, I think that's kind of scraping the barrel. Now, listen, as someone, my my family, my father's African-American. So I grew up often being sent to the U.S., Georgia. I remember like as a 10-year-old watching the Ku Klux Klan hand out leaflets. I, I remember being in a, another time being at a swimming pool in a hotel 
again, maybe I was 12, 13, and there were like five white kids in the water and me and my uh, three black cousins got in. The mothers, the white mothers, I mean, you know, this is Atlanta, Georgia, I don't know, it must have been like 1980s, something like that. They come and they whisper quickly, get out, get out of the water. And I remember saying to my cousins, what, what, what is going on here? Why have those white kids just got out of the water? And they, they explained to me, well, they don't want to be in a pool with black kids. And I was just like, whoa. Like, so I was, look, there's a ton of racism in the UK as well. It's just different in Mm -hmm. nature because it's not based on the lived experience of people that were essentially enslaved on Mm -hmm. the same territory, right? Obviously, we benefited hugely from the slave trade. I would just say the lived experience for both black and white people is different. When your great-grandparents, you know, in my case, my great-great-grandfather and mother were slaves, right? There's a different history there. So I spent like 20 years basically in the equality space, the DEI space, really focused on how do you change institutional change? How do you change the system? What the murder of George Floyd taught me is that if you don't spend time changing how the people within the system think, you'll never fundamentally change the system. So at SNAP, we came up with a framework to help people think about this. It's called the three I framework. When you ask yourself, what should I do? There aren't three simple tasks that will solve systemic racism or any other ism (laughs) by Friday lunchtime. But what you can do is you can, first of all, the first I is internal. You need to change the way you think about this. You need to educate yourself. And that that is different for different people. I need to educate myself on disability. I need to educate myself on, you know, as a straight woman, am I thinking about things that impact people in the LGBTQ plus community? Everyone, whether you're in a minority group or not, (laughs) has to do the work internally to understand and be able to spot equity and inequity, right? Mm -hmm. And secondly, interpersonal. The the second eye is interpersonal. How is your behavior going to change towards people? What are you actually going to do differently? And then thirdly, when you have those two sorted out, then you attempt to change the institution, the system. But systemic interventions will not work. I think this is, this was the great shift that happened with a lot of majority groups, especially people in the white community. And we never even used to talk about the white community, really, because they were just by default, the majority group never had to really think about it. They had to start thinking about it oh what is my role what does it mean to be white in this society um that oh actually if we dig a bit deeper it seems that systemically it is built to benefit white communities Mm -hmm. in a way that black and brown communities do not benefit do i need to engage with this how should i think about this it's not my fault i didn't create this no you didn't but you may well benefit from it and Mm -hmm. you need to take some responsibility like we all do to change it. The last thing is what that means is we have to shift the burden of DEI being something that underrepresented groups do. You know, the burden has been on the women, on the black and brown people, yeah. on the people with disabilities, on the people in the LGBTQ plus community, etc. And we need to change that. And it has majority groups because, hey, that's the deal. They are the majority. You know, you're never going to change how people yeah. think in that system if you're not changing the way majority groups think about this. So you can't really go at it. If you go at it at like all guns blazing, it's a war, which often white people, if you want to have this conversation, they immediately freeze. It's like, you're going to attack me. It's like, well, no, we want to unpack the system and how you are thinking within the system and how mm. you spot inequity and how you use your majority status to change it. So it's a huge, it's a really complex thing. Black 
Black History Month is about representation. It's about being seen, um, especially in spaces where we might feel like we're the minority. Um, it kind of provides a degree of comfort, but also understanding um, of our contributions to society, where we've come from, um, how we've got here, um, and also just the the pioneers in the Black community who have done such amazing legendary work um, and continue to do so. Black History Month is a chance for the population in its entirety to not only acknowledge but celebrate all of those who made it possible for all of the UK, not just Black people, to have a greater quality of life. It's a chance for us to discover forgotten names of those whose accomplishments may not be as widely known as others or those who haven't received the proper credibility for their work. I think most importantly, it's also an opportunity for Black people in the UK to look back at our recent history and ask questions about the state of play. So are we happy with our lives as Black people living in the UK? What does the impact of so-called progress mean for me on a day-to-day -day basis and how I live my life? What opportunities have emerged for me that weren't possible for my parents' generation, for example? And can we be bolder and more creative about the sort of outcomes we want for ourselves? And in what time frame do we really see this happening? And what does that look like? I think there's a quote um, I heard a while ago which goes along the lines of, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going. Um, so uh, understanding the history of how I got here gives me a better appreciation of how I came to be. But I would like to point out, looking closer to home can be more pivotal than the wider narrative. Sometimes I like to ask my parents about their upbringing and who my grandparents were what they did for a living and what challenges they faced growing up. In my opinion, their story is my history and that's just as important as any other history you could learn. Black History Month is important, particularly for me. It's a month where we're able to celebrate, we're able to acknowledge, we're able to recognise the contributions of people of black heritage in society it's important because it should be something that's interwoven into the fabric of our history because it is. It's just not spoken about or taught about in that way. And to understand black history is to understand everybody's history. It's important to know where we've all come from in order to know where we can go, what we're capable of, and find inspiration in the everyday as well as the bigger things to look forward to in life. So Black History Month is important because it's a time of celebration and acknowledgement and reflection. 
I think Black History Month is important because it's a chance for us to celebrate um, and remember the stories of the people who paved the way before us. Um, there are names um, and people in history who should never be forgotten for generations to come. And I believe that Black History Month gives us the space to do that and also have like pivotal conversations regarding everything concerning Black culture and the progress of Black people. Um, so it's a time for us to come together um, as a community and to celebrate everything that we've achieved. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortunate Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm-hmm.